As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favour I heard you, and in the days of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path, so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonour, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Okay, so 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 to 13. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word, and we ask for help. And we know that you are working all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purposes. And we have expectation that tonight would be a special night for some of us. It would only be so, Lord, Holy Spirit, if you were to speak to our hearts, if you were to give revelation, if you were to bring encouragement and challenge. And so we just invite you to do that. And may Jesus be lifted up and glorified. Amen. Tonight we're going to be considering what freedom looks like in the shape of a cross. And it is revision. It's something that I've talked about lots of times. So I think it's just a major theme in the Bible. What freedom looks like in the shape of a cross. In heaven, in the new creation, when heaven has joined earth, Jesus has returned. And God has what he planned, a bride for his son. And... We, we used to call it heaven, but now we understand that it's heaven and earth joined together in new creation. We're doing stuff. When we're there, by grace through faith, we will have no power of contrary choice. There's no sin. And one of the downsides of free will is sin. So we get to choose against God's will now, this side of heaven and new creation. But... In the new creation, we won't have the power of contrary choice. And, and an interesting question to then raise is, will we be totally free in new creation if I don't get to choose to sin? I mean, you know, we might say, but God, like I want to sin. You said I'd have freedom. And God says, no, you don't get it. To be able to do whatever you want but not choose to sin is to be truly human. So that's a question to have um, rattling around in your mind. Would I be completely free if I still had restrictions, um, if I couldn't sin? It certainly goes against mainstream thinking right now, doesn't it? 
Even the thought, the discussion about submission, we don't like that. We don't like submitting, giving in, giving up anything we have. When I was a teenager, um, there was a song, Don't be afraid of your freedom, I'm free to do what I want. You guys know that song? Hey, you're older than us, maybe. <laughs> but that was a song way back in the 80s, but now it's just like it totally taken for granted. Of course that's what freedom is. I want to be able to be whoever I am, be whatever, you know, type of person, gender, anything is up for grabs these days in the 21st century. So um, it sort of goes against that, that ultimate freedom might have restriction to it. Well, tonight we're in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians and Paul is talking about some of the challenges that he's enduring as an apostle of Jesus, Paul suffered greatly for his faith. Was he free? Was he free in life? Did he enjoy freedom? Well, he certainly talks as though he did. Was Jesus free when he looked at his hand and there's a nail through his wrist against the cross? Was Jesus free in that moment when he hung restrained and constrained on a cross. Ben read this out for us before. Um, Hebrews tells us this. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. There was something in the cross, or through the cross, that the Lord Jesus was looking at that was filling him with joy. I normally associate joy with freedom. So there's something powerful about the cross that is a conundrum. The son says, you are free, and Jesus says, if the son sets you free, you will be what? Free indeed. So as Christians, <clears throat> we are invited into freedom. Yet the Bible also says we're slaves of righteousness. So I'm a slave, but I'm free. How do I understand this? And I think it's essential in understanding this passage. The cross is the answer to the conundrum. The cross. The cross is this symbol of immense suffering and constriction, yet it's the doorway to freedom. So Paul begins chapter 6, like we heard in verse 1. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. So if you check on your bulletin, it's at the front, the whole passage. And then there's a handout that has some a bunch of verses. We urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favour, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour... Now is the day of salvation. There are times in our lives that are different to other times. Sometime in our life, we will know that we know that we know that God is close. Is that fair to say? It's just, you hear it in testimonies. You sort of go through life for a whole bunch of things and all sorts of highs and lows. But when you look back on it, you go, oh, God came close there. And um, I've heard lots of stories here. And they sound like this. He protected me from certain death. That's one of the testimonies I've heard here. I know he came close. Paul says, sometimes the day of salvation is just right there where God's saying, oh, 
I'm here, I'm saving you, it's your time. Other times we have experienced God's closeness when we've failed. It just failed and it just comes on us like a ton of bricks. And, but it feels like God is with, with us in that. I heard this within the last week. Someone testify, he has been gently yet consistently prodding for 30 years. He's sending me a message of his love through billboards, newspapers, co-workers that don't know they're talking to me on behalf of God, saying stuff that I just know it's from God. And it's like God's trying to communicate to us. Many times people testify. We open up the Bible and again and again, it's this sort of same message. He's saying similar things. And these are kairos times. And I'm not trying to get silly with quoting Greek words, but sometimes it's, it's, it's helpful. These two Greek words for time, chronos and kairos. Chronos being chronological time. It's, just, it's one thing after the other. It's sequential. Um, that's chronological, day after day, year after year, chronological time. But God so often works in kairos time. And kairos is that Greek word that means God-appointed season. There are God-appointed seasons in our lives where we, they could be hard or really great, but we know God is there. It's like Paul's words are true. Now's the day. Now's the season. The reason I'm talking about Kairos is if you look up the Greek passage of verse 1 through 2, it's not Kronos time there, it's Kairos. So Paul is saying to the church that he planted at Corinth in Greece, God's come close to you guys. He, he, he sets you free from a whole lot of junk. And you want to know what the junk is that this letter is speaking to? Read 1 Corinthians. There's incest. There's lawsuits, litigation amongst believers. It goes on and on and on. These guys are broken. And, and Jesus, uh, Paul, is saying to them, God has met you in your rabble and sin and he's pulled you out. Don't lose sight of that, that he has come. Just like we've experienced these times where God comes close and he says stuff like this. I love you. I love you. I know you're feeling anxious. Come to me, my burden is light. I'll teach you how to walk in my unhurried rhythms of grace. Anyone know that feeling when God says, hey, come out here. Do you remember I sent Jesus to die for you? You can't do it on your own. Has anyone felt like God has ever communicated to you, you know the world is not enough. They can't offer you enough. Some of us have tried to find it in nightclubs. Others have tried to find it in the check that to get signed for our commission. If only I could get that many zeros next to my name, maybe it's just in midlife, you watch other people fall off the wagon or marriages fall apart and you start realising, wow, people live for the wrong thing. But God all the way through by His Spirit says, the world's not enough. I'm the only one who's enough for you. I've put a homing device in your heart and mind. Come back here, I'll give you fulfilment and purpose. So this is the day of salvation. And um, have you responded to that? Have you responded? Maybe you responded a long time ago, but you've been wandering away. Can I just encourage you, if you've wandered away, it's completely normal. Can anyone say amen? That means a guy agree. Like, it's just normal. And 
don't condemn yourself if you've walked away. It's like, yeah, that's that's normal part of life. But it's also normal for, normal for God to chase you. And not in a harsh way, in a loving way, in a gentle way. He keeps saying, hey, come on. Come back. I, I want to give you life and life to the full. So that's what Paul's saying to these people at Corinth. He says, don't take God's grace and his closeness for granted like a lot of people do. Because they think that like a puppy dog, he'll always be there all the way through life. Hey, Rover, keep coming. I'll tell you when I need you. Bang, bus hits them. They don't get a chance to actually receive the grace. And more than that, it's not just to get into heaven. They're missing out on what? Life. Life more abundantly. So let's not do that. Let's receive this salvation as a gift. Let's receive this forgiveness, coming back to God as a gift. We had a, um, Tony Jones was a scripture worker. He's a scripture worker in Normanhurst Boys. And he was sharing this morning. It was so good to hear him share. And he, we support him as a church. And he reminded me of scripture. I've told you guys this story. But for me, years ago, teaching in Caringbell High um, and uh, teaching scripture, year 10. And I, pull, I, I don't have... I don't pull it out here, but I have a $2 coin, and I go, um, who wants $2? And no one says anything, and then someone at the back says, I'll have it. And I go, oh, okay, cool, yeah, and I threw it to them. And of course, there's some other people that feel so, this is so unjust. I want $2 too, and I said, I asked you if you want $2. You didn't receive it. Of course, there was a nice segue to say, you know, every week we talk about a gracious God who's offering you a gift of forgiveness and salvation. And some of you are the same. You go, I didn't think it was really a free gift. But it is. So that's the gospel. God sent his son to die on the cross, pay for our sins so that we, by faith in what he has done on the cross 2,000 years ago, might be forgiven. Gift. That's what it says in Ephesians 2. Let me read it to you. It's on your little handout. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. No one is earning it. But then there's this weird twist and I've got it there for you to see. Salvation is this gift and it's what Paul is reminding the people of Corinth about. But... Matthew 16, Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And you could be forgiven for saying, I thought it was a gift. I thought it was like a free gift. You give me the gift of salvation, I get to do whatever I want. I don't want to be constrained. I want complete freedom. But Jesus says, no, there's something a bit mysterious about freedom and knowing God. He calls us to live a life that is cross-shaped. So salvation is a gift, yet the gift comes as a cross. Now that's pretty abstract. Let me just keep unpacking it a bit. Colossians 1.24, Paul writes this. Paul is this apostle who wrote all these letters. I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Which is a really weird passage because it sounds like there's something lacking, doesn't it? 
like lacking in what Jesus did. There's a sense that in the economy of God, the cross of Jesus, though completely sufficient in and of itself as an event in history to pay for the sin of the world, is a type of the manner in which the kingdom of God moves forward. So that once-off thing that Jesus did, we don't ever add to it, but it is a type, it's like a model of the way the power of God comes through his church, the body of Jesus, in an ongoing way in history. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, Jesus died, lived, rose again, went back to heaven, sent his spirit in me, and I, with other believers, are his body. But we, we walk in a cross-shaped way. We experience stuff that reminds us of the cross, stuff like this as a Christian. Vulnerability. Because that's what it is to be on a cross. Like very vulnerable. Self-sacrifice, we're called to. Love. Humility. A mysterious power where we're weak but we're strong. And that's exactly what Paul says in Colossians 2.15. He says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Paul is saying, there's this weird thing in, in God's economy. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was winning. In fact, the, look at the words that he use, uses. He was disarming the powers that would come against him. He was making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Isn't that a ridiculous thing to say? Oh, look at me. See, I told you I'd win. And he is nailed, constricted, restricted on a cross. And in that moment, not only when he rose from the dead, but in the moment of the cross, he's saying, I beat you, Satan. Isn't that weird? That there is this power in the cross. And Jesus says to the disciples and us, pick up your cross. Pick up your cross. And this is what we heard, I think Christine was preaching on this a few weeks ago, 2 Corinthians 4, in that light, in that context, listen to these words, a chapter before where we are now. Paul writes, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are, think about cross-language. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body a shape of a cross, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then, again, cross-language. Death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Death and life. Freedom, restriction. Two more verses. 2 Corinthians 3.18. So the same book we've been studying. 
Paul writes, We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. When you think of being transformed into the glorious image of Jesus, what do you think about? Probably nothing. It's so abstract. But I want to think about my face shining. I want to think about, yeah, glorious Jesus rising from the dead. But this is more of the context that I'm being transformed into the image of a lamb who would give his life for the world. Oh, really? Is that the image we're meant to represent? Well, it is. This cross-shaped yet victorious image of a crucified Saviour King. And last one, 2 Corinthians 4.17. Paul writes, Our light and momentary troubles are doing something. They are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So Paul says, As a Christian, as you take steps towards obedience that bring you along a path of life that includes a cross. Jesus says you've got to carry it. Your life will fill up some elements of suffering and pain, but in it, carrying those troubles, which are light and momentary, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. There's something going on that's glorious in the midst of the pain. Can we sigh together? Okay, no more verses. I know there's a lot to sort of take in. But it's like this backstory of the passage that we're about to come to. Has anyone um, been wine stomping? You know what wine stomping is? Look it up sometime. Uh, <laughs> wine stomping, there's plenty of pictures on Google. Um, they, they stopped doing it properly, like so bare feet stomping around on grapes, hoping that people don't have tinea and all that. Like it's, gross. it's grossly unhygienic, right? And um, that's why they stopped doing it in the Middle Ages. I think Portugal was the last place they did it. But you can do it in the Hunter Valley just for fun. You look it up online, you see all these people in wedding dresses, like doing um, wine stomping and the groom there as well. The point being that you're squishing grapes to get the juice out of it to then make wine. When I was a teenager, I remember one of our pastors having this illustration that's always stuck with me. Um, He said, you know, we're called to be grapes. You're not as important as you think you are. You're just one grape. So imagine yourself as a follower of Jesus. You're one grape and he puts you in a barrel and he wants to crush you into wine that, as Paul says in Philippians, can be poured out on the sacrifice. Anyone signing up for that? I sort of enjoyed it at the time. I was like a masochist Christian back then, but I liked the idea that, you know, like it's easy to go, oh, I've got such a big calling, you wait. I'm going to be like Moses because I'm so special. But this teaching was just saying, hey, not everyone gets to do some amazing heroic thing in the kingdom. But we all get to be a grape. And you don't get to pick whose feet crush you. But in the end, if you trust the Lord, 
something good's going to come out of it and it'll be poured out as a glorifying thing onto Jesus. Anyone still with me? Are we a little bit much? Well, when you read Paul's story, it's pretty much like this. There is some really tough stuff that he goes through. It's painful, it's confusing, it's constricting, yet it's life-giving. There's something really powerful about the grape analogy because it's never going to work with one grape. You get a whole bunch of grapes together and something good can come out of it. When you feel yourself getting squished and crushed with others, it's like, whoa, this is a bit easier to do. So let's get into the passage, and we won't spend that much time in it, I promise you. Um, 2 Corinthians, on the front page of your bulletin, or back into your phone or something. Paul writes this, with all that back stuff in the back of your mind. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And these are the first four things he says. In great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses. Look up those words and look at the original language. And it basically means this. We're getting rubbed together. All all those words are about a constriction. So Paul's saying, my life feels like I'm getting squished. I'm getting constricted. Now remember, the hand on the cross. A cross-shaped life. There will be this sense of being constricted, yet there's a freedom in it. Paul's certainly feeling it. It's like, you know, it's taking a long time. Endurance, troubles, hardships, distresses. Verse 5, he goes into something that some of us have experienced maybe, but not so many. He says, you know, this carrying a cross for me has meant beatings. I have taken blows to the head, to the body. It's been hard. I've been imprisoned. I've been in riots, hard work, sleepless nights and hunger. Many of us could imagine um, times in our lives where we've felt anxiety that's affected our body in, in trying to walk the Jesus walk, in trying to be a Christian. Some of us have felt it in our families, um, at school, where there's been a sense of persecution and words really hurt. Like, um, so you know this, it's not just, I don't know, a Christian in Syria, like you guys and me, like we can feel a sense of persecution and, and, and hard stuff in carrying this cross-shaped life. And then he talks about the challenge of living the Jesus life authentically. In verse 6, he says, In purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love. He's talking about fruit of the Spirit. And even though the fruit of the Spirit sort of is like fruit on a tree, it sort of emerges, don't you reckon in, in, in your life God gives you opportunities, kairos moments, to allow the fruit to come out? Like the fruit of a Christian life given over for God's glory Um, it just doesn't come out without moments of obedience along the way where where you go, God, I choose you over the flesh. I choose you. Like, I I want you to be glorified. And I think Paul is saying that. He's like, I'm doing my best by God's grace to live a pure life and and, and patient, kind, but 
I feel it's hard. Like it, it has a cost on me. Verse 7, he says, um, In truthful speech and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. And when I read this, I thought, yeah, that's the stuff I want. I want some weapons. Get rid of the grape analogy. Being walked over like a doormat. Give me some of them weapons so we can fight back. Anyone up for that? Nobody. Good on you guys. So godly. I want to fight back against someone coming at me and... So what are they? There's weapons in the right hand, weapons in the left. And so what Paul is saying, he talks about in Ephesians chapter 6, in the right hand a Christian has the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And you can't get to pull it out of someone else's scabbard. So when you're going in a sort of battle and you need God's truth, you need to be able to have the Word of God in here so I can pull it out and say, no, here's the truth. So the devil comes at you or whatever the world comes at you and there's times where you have to go, I'm not going that path. No, here I stand on the truth of God's word. But that's really hard to do if you don't know any truth. You're like, is there a... this is a really hard thing and I think I'm in a spiritual battle and if I knew it first, I would quote it. I'd so quote it now. It's not going to help, guys. Jesus goes, get behind me, Satan. You do not have the things of God on your mind, Peter. Or another time you'll say, man doesn't live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. He'll quote scripture. Say, um, you know, you could be coming up with temptation. It's good to say, hey, the Bible says that I will, God will not tempt me beyond what I can bear. He will always give me a way out. So you go, where's that way out? Where is it? There it is. I'm diving under it. I'm getting out of here. What's on the left? So you've got the sword of the spirit, the, 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 the word of truth. That is a powerful thing to make it through this challenging life as a Christian we have to live. What's on the left hand? Well, the left hand in biblical times is a defensive armour. It's the shield of faith. Shield of faith. The sword of the Spirit in the right, shield of faith in the left. And when things are really tough, we need the shield of faith because the Bible says it can extinguish how many of the fiery arrows of the evil one? You want to remember? All. Hallelujah. And I always feel like the shield of faith, when I'm using it, doesn't feel like you're going, huh, take that. It's more like... (laughs) Anyone relate to that? Like it's bunker down, you know, the fiery... When the fiery arrows start coming in from the evil one, I don't know, it's not normally some superhero movie where you're just running. You normally take a few hits. (laughs) You're like, I'm going to use that shield of faith. The shield of faith to me is this this, um, profound remembrance that there is a loving God who has me in his sights. There's a sovereign God who hasn't forgotten me. And I want to remember that. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. So the sword of the spirit, it it builds our ability to stand with faith. There's a mystery going on here to get through our calling, which is challenging as Christians, because it's it's not just someone who comes at us and and in our heart we can go, oh, you're the enemy. Verse 8, through glory and dishonour, bad report and good report, Genuine, yet regarded as imposters. 
known yet regarded as unknown. He's talking about slander. He's talking about gossip. He's talking about character assassination. He's talking about lies. The cross we carry comes in all sorts of forms. And you may, someone might throw mud on you in your life and you won't see it coming and then all of a sudden your reputation's been tarnished and you're like, this really is unfair. And in that moment, I want to encourage you, there's a cross to be picked up. Because Jesus was not treated fairly with people's words and neither was Paul. And it's not that you don't stand up for justice at times, for sure. But... um, yeah, the challenges we face in carrying the cross are often words, dishonour. And then he says this, dying yet we live on. Does that sound like a cross-shaped life? Dying yet we live on. Beaten and not yet killed. Or beaten and yet not killed. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. The, the life we've been called to live, um, knowing Jesus, is filled with this hope that's incredible and faith and love and joy and peace and all these wonderful things. But please don't think, as a younger person, many of you, that... That will be a vibe that will just permeate your life day after day after day. It just doesn't work like that. Um, Exhibit A, Paul. You've got to find a way of getting back up off the ground. In your own stupor of failure and find grace again. It's just there. Um, The great stuff in life is right next to the really hard stuff. And, and, And... Somehow we've got to find a way of holding them together. Sorrowful yet rejoicing. God, how do I do that? Good question. And he says, poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. He says, we've spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. How does this economy work in God's kingdom? Where we carry a cross like Jesus did. Not the same. He did it once and for all. But we we live a cross-shaped life. How do you make it through... It works in community. That's how it works. Like, isn't that a beautiful picture? This is the Apostle Paul. He's a crazy man. Like he's Spirit of God's on him. And he says, guys, help me out. You're a church that I planted. I'm far from home. I've been trying to be vulnerable with you. Open my heart to you. And verse 13 he says, as a fair exchange, all I'm asking is you open your heart to me too. I think it's a really beautiful little picture of, I need you. We need you. We need you to do this together. Can I encourage you that um, right now you're walking through stuff that God is using to shape you, you know, the woman, the man that you're going to be. And others are 
much older and that's been happening for a longer time and you can look back and see in our particular life journey how we've been knocked down how God's grace has picked us back up it is for a reason we've been called to do this together in Hornsby for as long as we get to do it together some of us will leave looking around the room some will we'll leave and move off in other Christian community and it's all church right like it doesn't matter where you go um, but those of us who, who do it intensely together may we carry this cross with a joy yet do it together let's help each other let's Embrace freedom as we do it. How do you do that? What do you learn? Um, I, I used this uh, two years ago, I think, but it's one of my favourite videos. Uh, it's Shane and Shane singing a song that's pretty impacting, really. It's called Though He Slay Me. And uh, John Piper, who's a preacher from America, starts talking in the middle of it. It goes for about five minutes. And um, if, you, if you're carrying something right now or you see it about to come, I hope this will be an encouragement to you. And uh, then we're going to head over for communion. Thanks, Julian.
momentary. Not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course you can't see what it's doing. Don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies, when your kid dies, when you've got cancer at 40, when a car careens in the sidewalk and takes her out, don't say, it's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, therefore, do not lose heart, but take these truths and day by day, focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach His Word into your mind until your heart sings.